0: Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released bonus episodes on No Time to Die and the Icelandic film Lamb, and we'll be dropping another one soon, looking back on the David Lynch version of Dune. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash Show.
1: It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us!
2: Welcome
0: to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with... Keith Phipps. Genevieve Kosky.
1: And Scott Tobias.
0: We've all been tentatively headed back to theaters lately as we head into prestige season and a barrage of new films by some creators we love. So here's wishing you a theater full of masked and vaxxed people who don't compromise your safety. Remember, when you're in a theater, you're breathing the recycled air that everybody else has been breathing. So wearing a mask isn't just socially responsible. Uh, okay, wait, why are you all wearing rebreathers and still suits? Isn't that taking this uh, hygiene thing a little too far?
3: Okay, look, I know this is where we normally do a little scripted banter around the theme of the movie of the moment. But frankly, these movies are both really, really long. The first one's nearly four hours and covers years of real world incident in its characters' lives. Do you think we have time to waste on pretending we're all wearing science fiction water recycling suits, Tasha?
0: I mean, if David Lean was telling the story, he would definitely spend at least 45 minutes on the pretending we're all wearing still suits part of the podcast.
2: And it looked great on screen, sure, but we don't exactly have the visual element going for us here.
1: Or the soundtrack, or the budget that it would let us goose this into something Oscar-worthy. We're also really short on camels.
0: Fine, we'll cut to the chase, but I just want you to all know that I'm currently imagining you with recycling tubes up your noses. Uh, Genevieve, you want to give us the rundown?
3: (laughs) Sure. This week we're looking at a couple of lonely leaders with sand in their britches, one out of history and one living in the far, far future. Denis Villeneuve's Dune, or more technically, Dune Part 1, is hitting theaters as we record this podcast, with a technologically polished version of the 1965 Frank Herbert science fiction novel that David Lynch previously adapted for the screen back in 1984. Dune's central protagonist is Paul Atreides, a highly privileged and educated young man who becomes a messiah to an extensive tribe of desert nomad people who rally around him to fight a common enemy. Some elements of the story are pure science fiction, like his planet's giant sandworms or the mysterious spice that makes space travel possible. Other elements seem very familiar from one of cinema's towering classics, David Lean's 1962 epic Lawrence of Arabia, a sweeping biography of a real-life British officer embedded with Arab forces during the Arab revolt of World War I. Both of these figures are outsiders who take control of indigenous tribes that have full control of the hostile environments where they live, and both of them are pretty obsessed with desert power in some of the most inhospitable environments imaginable.
0: The truth around Lawrence's life is more complicated than the movie version, and both of them are more complicated than Dune, but we'll get into all three things this week when we head out into the sand wastes. This week, we'll cover Lawrence's complicated psychology and even more complicated legacy. And then next week, we'll look for Worm Sign in the Deep Desert as we bring in Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Please join us.
1: I deem him one of the greatest beings alive in our time.
3: We shall never see his like again. His name will live in history, it will live in the annals of war. It will live in the legends of Arabia.
2: Who is he? Pitta! Tavas!
3: What is your name? My name is for my friends.
1: None of my friends is a murderer. For over a quarter of a century, controversy has raged around the name of T.E. Lawrence. No man of our time has drawn upon himself so much praise and so much criticism. The man torn between two civilizations. Lawrence of Arabia, filmed against a canvas of awesome magnificence.
0: There's no disputing that the story behind David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia was a major influence on science fiction author Frank Herbert when he was writing Dune, his novel about a young man who comes to an alien world with his family and ends up as an outcast living among a desert tribe and leading them to throw off their oppressors. But it's documented that Herbert actually started the research for Dune in 1959, years before Lawrence of Arabia captured the popular imagination and swept the Oscars. Some critics dismissed Herbert's work as derivative of the movie, but it's more accurate to say that he and David Lean were looking to the same source for inspiration. Colonel Thomas Edward Lawrence's 1926 autobiography, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, an immensely popular book about Lawrence's adventures on the Arabian Peninsula and his interactions with Arab fighters and leaders there. The version of Lawrence we see in the book isn't exactly the version of him we see in Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence's writing is modest by comparison about his role in the Arab revolt, although historians have still argued over whether he was an egotist who embellished his own importance and his own experiences. Regardless, he doesn't seem to have seen himself as David Lean's movie sees him as an exemplar of diplomacy and open-mindedness, a visionary whose strength of imagination and character changes the course of the war, and as a man desperately caught between two worlds without being able to comfortably fit into either. Lean's movie is more about myth-making than about that man. And if contemporary audiences are sometimes uncomfortable with this movie, it's in part because they've seen this particular kind of myth dominate history and popular culture for decades, and they know the damage it's done. Judged by today's standards, the film sometimes looks quaint or discomforting, given how it leans on the hoary old white savior trope, fills key roles with white men and face, and portrays Bedouins and other Arab groups as hooting savages in desperate need of civilizing and ultimately unwilling or incapable of accepting it. And even by the standards of the time, Lawrence of Arabia was far from a guaranteed hit. Speaking to NPR about the film's 50th anniversary re-release, co-star Omar Sharif laughed over the implausibility of the film capturing the public imagination. Quote, I didn't at all think that anyone would even look at this film, he says. It's three hours and 40 minutes or something like that. And Peter O'Toole and myself were unknown, both of us, when we made the film. And there was just secondary actors who were well-known and all that, but you couldn't believe that the people would go and sit for three hours and 40 minutes with no women, with no loving, with no action. The action was very little in that film. All you did is get onto the camel and go around in the desert. That's all. So that's a modest look at the movie's assets. It's true that Peter O'Toole was essentially unknown at the time. This was his fourth film role, but his opening credit is still a cheeky. Introducing Peter O'Toole. It's also true that it's a long movie, and sometimes a slow and ponderous one. But that action that Sharif dismisses as people going around on camels is pretty tremendous stuff. It spans a vast stretch of screen as an army rides headlong into a contested Turkish stronghold, or a raiding party mounts a bloody assault on a train. Even when there's no action, the film is visually beautiful, built on that grand scale David Lean was famous for, and built around memorable and distinctive figures on both the British and the Arab side. But in spite of all the ups and downs, the battles and losses, the set pieces and struggles, the heart of the film is really in the way Lean and writer Robert Bolt use the story to wrestle with the myth of the big man hero. O'Toole plays Colonel Lawrence as a deeply conflicted man, a soldier who builds alliances and becomes a celebrated figure among the Bedouins by embracing their ways and their dress and earning their respect with heroic deeds and a not entirely sane form of courage and daring. Among his allies are Omar Sharif as the tribal leader Sharif Ali, the powerful Prince Faisal, played by Alec Guinness, and Sheikh Auda, played by Anthony Quinn, as the head of the vast and powerful Hawatat tribe. They come to see him not entirely as an interloper, but as a bridge between their people and a route to ousting the Turkish presence in their contested lands. And while the movie focuses on Lawrence's bold deeds and big gambles, it also keeps returning to the very reasonable feeling that he's an outsider, that war is pushing him towards bloodlust, that the things he's seen and done and suffered are overwhelming, and that giving in to his messiah complex may not be the healthiest way to proceed. Lena opens the movie in a way designed to further undercut Lawrence's heroic status, by showing him dying in what appears to be an entirely preventable accident, then focusing on the dismissive and preemptory attitudes of the men who supposedly knew him. Lawrence of Arabia is a celebrated classic that won seven Oscars, including Best Picture and Director, and it's one of those movies people speak of with awe. But it's still remarkable to note how Lean shifts back and forth between the big, Oscar-winning set pieces where Lawrence seems to consider himself immortal, and the intimate sequences where he gives into his doubt. It's a complexity we see again in Dune, but a complexity we're not always privy to in our hero stories, especially about men we'd like to see as myths. We'll talk more about it after the
1: break.
4: Anywhere within 300 miles of Medina... They are Hashemite Bedouins. They can cross 60 miles of desert in a day.
2: Oh, thanks, Dryden. This is going
4: to be fun. Lawrence,
2: only two kinds of creature get fun in the desert. Bedouins and gods, and you're neither. Take it from me. For ordinary men, it's a burning, fiery furnace. No, Dryden. It's going to be fun. It
4: is recognized that you have a funny
0: sense of fun. So uh, what's everybody's history with Lawrence Arabia?
2: So I'd only seen this film once before. I saw it on, uh, and it was oh boy, t- over 20 years ago. But I saw it in, on the big screen, 70 millimeter, uh, you know, this beautiful preservation. And I was like, I kind of made a vow to myself, I, thought, I don't think I ever really want to watch this movie at home. <laughs> 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 mm-hmm. Ever. Uh, that said, duty called, and I watched it again. And 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 My reaction watching it this time was was it was kind of like, this isn't just a, a really good movie. This is kind of better than almost every other movie. <laughs> I mean, it's just a fantastic piece of filmmaking and of storytelling. Uh, the characterization of, of Lawrence, uh, what O'Toole does with it, uh, is so complex and kind of mysterious at times. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking over there with, with everyone, but suffice to say, I, I think this is a really great movie and, and I, I was happy to revisit it
3: it was also my second time seeing it, but I kind of had sort of the opposite experience, at least in terms of uh, size of projection. I I, I watched this for the first time probably about 15 years ago. I've I've mentioned before several times on this podcast, whenever we uh, do a movie that was on the uh, AFI uh, 100 Greatest Films list back in the early 2000s, that in grad school, I I made my way through that list uh, via Netflix DVDs, and Lawrence of Arabia was, of course, on that list. I think it was number five, and it, it, maybe it's dropped down a couple slots since then. Uh, still easily in the top ten. So I watched this v- uh, on DVD on my 12-inch uh, television oh, with wow. a, a DVD pl- uh, player uh, in, uh, in, in it, you know, the dorm room-style t- television. So that was my first time seeing Lawrence of Arabia. So watching it now, uh, or re-watching it uh, now on my, you know, much larger, nicer screen was Definitely an upgrade, but it was also just made painfully clear, like as you indicated, Keith. Like this is a movie that you kind of have to see in a theater to, like, I don't want to say to grasp it, because like I, like I, watching this movie, like I can see its greatness, I can understand its greatness. It, there are certain, like, I don't even want to say limitations, but there are certain things just like about it that I think are just never going to square with my own personal relationship with, uh, like, how I watch it. Like, there's no female characters. There's, like, not a single female character in this movie. And that's fine. It's not, like, what the movie is doing. But I generally am much more interested in, you know, stories about female characters. So, like, that's sort of a little, you know, limitation. Obviously, the brown face is, like, in the characterization of the Arab tribes is, like, kind of difficult to reconcile today. But honestly, like, none of that really stopped me from uh, you know appreciating the cinematic power of this film even on a you know not giant screen um, if I ever have the opportunity to see it projected, I think I would take that opportunity um, you know four hour runtime and all. I do want to say, though, that the I, I watched it this time via a streaming service. It was a very nice print, but it had no intermission. The intermission hadn't, uh, mm. like, it, did, mm. it didn't pause it there, you know? Mm. Um, and I, like... I love an intermission, especially a, a movie like this. Um, I'm actually curious to know whether all of you watched this straight through or if you took a break and how long that break
2: was. Oh, I, I took a break at the intermission and came back like I watched the first part in the morning and then like watch the second part, I think that night, you know, and, yeah. and, and I, not my ideal way to watch a movie, but, but I break up movies all the time. It's just kind of yeah. unavoidable.
3: I mean, it kind of just, like, made me think, like, what is the best way to watch Lawrence of Arabia in 2021? Like, obviously the theater, but, like, that's not how I think probably the majority of our listeners are going to watch it. So, I'm just kind of, like, curious what everyone thinks about, like, what is the the right viewing approach to a movie of this stature and caliber?
0: I mean, I, I still am in favor of whenever, uh, you know, time and butt stamina allows watching, you know, <laughs> something like this all in a sitting. We did take a break at the intermission. We rented it from Amazon's uh, streaming service, and they they have the full intermission, which I have to admit, I sat through the intermission because I was curious how long it was. Yeah. Uh, I had a moment of, okay, why are they bothering to keep this in for streaming? And then I, was list- I found myself kind of caught up in listening to the music plays at the intermission like it's you know triumphant and, and sweeping and, and energetic but part of me was also just kind of wondering okay how long is this intermission like i'm picturing people like getting up from their plush seats in some gigantic uh, 60s movie house and making their way to get in line in the bathroom like how long in 1962 did people think people would need to like get up and buy more popcorn or use the restroom or whatever <laughs> so we actually paused it after the intermission and took our own brief intermission.
1: <laughs> <laughs> My feeling is that, is that, it, you know, I mean, the way it's been done in the past when, you know, I'd, I'd see like Spartacus or whatever, the restored the re- Spartacus, like the intermission of that score would not immediately follow the first part. It would just be kind of, a, you know, they'd stop it and you'd get up and you'd do your thing. And then and then that score coming on, that intermission part would be kind of your cue to maybe find your seat a little bit, you know, and settle in. I don't feel like it's like, like, like the clock starts, you know, and you have yeah. to like, find. you have to use that however many minutes to use the bathroom. And then then like come right back.
2: This is 100% the most fascinating topic we could be exploring. <laughs> yeah, <okay>. yeah, it, <laughs> it, is, it is
1: true. We've got a lot to cover <laughs> let me, here. Let me, let me <laughs> answer the, uh, let me answer the main question here. Um, history with Lawrence Arabia, I've never seen it projected, which is a uh, real, a uh, regret of mine, and my, and hopefully, I, you know, you'd think a place like Music Box here would probably, you know, show it at some point if it were available. Has uh, it not so been
3: I've part of the the festival? The I don't think so. I don't it's it, probably
1: not availability military? Issue, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a bummer. Um, so I've, I've, I haven't seen it projected, but I've seen it, and then of course I it, saw it again this time. I mean, it is. The stuff pre intermission is just unimpeachably brilliant. I don't think there's anything; it, it, it's so perfect. The first, you know, it, you know, things get a little messy, and I think necessarily so after intermission. Once Lawrence's mission and becomes cloudier, and you know Britain's goals for the the region are exposed, and and you know things start to unravel a bit. I mean all that stuff is really fascinating it adds a lot of depth to that story and a lot of depth to that character but just like in terms of just delivering incredible set pieces like you just can't beat the first half I mean the 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 greatest transition edit in movie history with the match you know the the incredible scene at the at the well uh, with his you know original guide and that that meeting with Omar Sharif's character I mean that and then of course just that taking of of that Turkish city that the way that shot is handled that marauding is like beautiful oh, it's like oh my god it's so it's so thrilling and simple too i mean like like it's, it's it's on this such an epic scale but like it is showing you it is showing you this this incredible wide shot of this city being overrun and while, it, while it's doing that, it's also giving you that information of, of this canon being pointed out to sea. It's just like, yeah. oh, that is so... And, the, and it gives you a shot of the sea. It's just, I mean, like, it's... How can you not just, like, fall in... It's just, you love it. as as just, just a cinema person. How can you not just love so much about the film just on a craft level? Uh, and I think on a character level, too, there's this T. Lawrence character. Endlessly fascinating. Uh, kind of a perfect performance by Peter O'Toole. I mean, he just has the right mix of just... I don't know. He's just, he's enigmatic and idealistic to some extent, but also, you know, you don't necessarily, you can't completely read him. And I don't think he he entirely understands who he is either. And, you know, and doesn't necessarily grasp the consequences of some of the actions that he, very bold actions that he's taking or advising be taken. I just think there's a lot of sort of richness there. So, uh, um, I do really like this movie, even, even with, of course, you know, whatever reservations you, you, you might, might have, which are legitimate i mean, brown face is not does not look hold up so great as 21 yeah uh,
2: i mean but, it's the paradox is you sh- they should have known better at the time it is what was done uh, you can't take away the greatness of especially guinness's performance guinness it's is incredible it's
1: big it's kind of regrettable how good alec guinness is in the movie but yeah. um but he is he is truly uh, truly incredible but uh, um, you know i mean yeah.
2: it it it, sh- it shouldn't have been do- probably shouldn't have been done for this um, I certainly shouldn't have been done for this but definitely shouldn't have been done for this, <laughs> WTF? As great as Christopher Abbott's performances, and in in that, or Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, rather. Uh, oh God, that's uh, right. As you know, great as you know, Christopher Abbott's one of the best actors working. <laughs> but it's like, that was, that was that was that was a little too a little, a little, a little too recent to be doing that. Yeah. Oh, anyway, not about that. Not a sidetrack about Whiskey Tango Foxtrot a movie. I know we're, we we all think about all the time, but uh, Can you, talk,
1: you can't talk about Lawrence of Arabia without talking about that movie. the
0: entire time I was watching Lawrence of Arabia, I was just thinking about WTF. <laughs> I don't know that the Music Box Theater here in Chicago has done Lawrence Arabia for its 70 millimeter festivals. But I did actually see this at the the music box before they installed their 70 millimeter screen. And I, I'm just agreeing with everybody that the big screen is the way to see it. I feel like, as is so often the case with me, I saw a lot more of the flaws of the film watching it the second time, like with some distance. And I can't help but wonder if part of that is just the express difference between watching it on the big screen, where it's just it's overwhelming to the senses how mm. how big this movie is, uh, just how much you have to take in, versus seeing it on the small screen, which you know we don't have a tiny TV and everything's uh, crisp and sharp and, and in digital relief. But there is just still that feeling of it's it's never going to be as overwhelming an experience, um, and maybe that leaves me a, a little more time. To at times get a little twitchy at the the pacing of this movie, uh maybe not because of the certainly not because of like the length of shots like that shot of the army pouring into Aquaba, which is held for a really long time and it's just it's time that you can spend studying the difference between how camels roll into battle and how horses uh, mm-hmm. so particularly Arabian horses roll into battle and just how how people are positioning themselves how the battle ranks are arrayed, you know, that is a really long shot that never gets boring. But there are segments in the movie that I find really repetitive. Lawrence's crises of faith are just not different enough for me to be distinctive. And each one of them is also just a bizarre kind of turnaround, where he storms in and says, you know, that's it, I'm done forever. And they say, oh, you shouldn't be. And he's like, oh, you're right. (laughs) Not only am I not done forever, I'm going to go do better and more than I ever have before. Bye. <laughs> so, I don't know. It's There are a lot of big swings in this movie, big performances, big moments, big dramas, big traumas. There's a lot going on, but there are times that I feel it maybe could have been a little tighter and, and had more impact. And I don't know that I felt that way at all seeing it for the first time in just you know wall-sized uh, overwhelmingness but it is something we all have to contend with given that we're not, you know, going down the the movie palace every day to see 1960s films.
3: I will say, like, I, I agree that, you know, I didn't necessarily have that, you know, overwhelming sensory experience, but I I was struck watching it even on my television, just how immersive some of those scenes were. And, and you know, Scott, you were talking about sort of just like the simplicity, the powerful simplicity of some of these scenes. And one of the very first, one, the motorcycle crash, mm-hmm. I like, that was one that, like, I felt. Like, you feel like you're going so fast, just like the the way it's filmed. And it, there's really not that much to it, you know, but like, just right from the beginning, I feel that that pulled me into the film in a really sort of visceral manner, you know, and of course, sort of the film's signature shot of just the wide open desert vista and a tiny figure in the horizon watching them slowly, like it, it's repeated a couple of times, you know, and that, yes, they go on for a very long time, but I think just the uncertainty of what is over the horizon and the knowledge that there's like nothing between you and whatever it is that's coming to you is just such a sort of consuming feeling that i think it it makes it you you not feel the length of those scenes
0: the idea of of starting the movie with his death and the funeral is just very interesting to me and i i'm wondering what everybody makes of that it seems it's good to enough me for citizen
3: kane why it, i can't <laughs>
0: <play>. <laughs> i'm not saying that it's not good enough or, or that it's a problem i think that it given how much of the film we're spending with lawrence kind of deciding who he is, that it's a really interesting choice to have the first thing that happens in the movie be showing you kind of the meaninglessness of his death. You do feel like he's going too fast. You, you feel like that was a, a reckless choice. And maybe it tells you something about where he is psychologically at that point in his life. Uh, but that, that accident just feels so preventable. And then you cut straight from there to this barrage of people who are hard to distinguish from each other since you haven't met them yet. And they're all dressed identically. And they're all saying, you know, either pretty dismissive or uh, cutting things about him for the most part. So before you get to know him as a man you know, he died in kind of a stupid way
3: and that that people didn't respect him.
0: And that's a such a strange way to start a story that's going to build him up to such epic heights.
3: Well, but there's also the guy who comes up and is like, how dare you say all that? And mm-hmm. and, and the response is like, well, did you know him? It's like, no, but he, he was a great man, you know? So like, yes, you get the he, you know, died in a stupid way and wasn't necessarily respected by a lot of the people's funeral. But you also get that there is a myth that has been built up around him and he is like famous and respected for something. So, sort of that, the tension between those two views of him, I think, is what's being established during during that funeral scene.
0: Yeah, maybe saying that he wasn't respected is too simplistic or dismissive because you do get a sense of respect from some of them. Just maybe in several senses, an idea that they have a, like, sharply conflicted feelings about him or they just don't feel that they knew him or maybe that it was possible to know him.
1: I mean, I, I kind of saw the whole affair as kind of a, a solid kind of shit-eating thing for his betters, right? I mean, they ha- this, is, <laughs> this, is a, this is a guy who they felt was arrogant and standoffish and not in line with military protocol uh, but who who they had to suck it up and kind of treat like a hero for the for the very tangible and important things he accomplished uh i think it's a very effective opening for the film because i think i think it it establishes it it kind of sketches the lawrence character before we even meet him and also kind of lets us anticipate you know, how he, you know, what kind of a mixed legacy that he end up having when the, among the people who knew him best and, and the people who knew him best didn't know him at all uh, that well. Um, so I don't know. I I, lo- I do love the opening. I think, I think there's a lot kind of go- going on and it's, and it's a good kind of like side entrance into the film.
2: It bookends so beautifully with the end to That's ambiguous look on his face as he watches a motorcycle speed away, and I believe it's, <laughs> the, I believe it's the same model of motorcycle. Oh my god! What a great ending! Does. Holy yeah, cow! Yeah, good movie, people. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> really, and, and, you
1: know, and to, to go back on to something that was said before about the look of the thing. You know, this was a film that was plainly conceived for seventy millimeter. I mean, seventy millimeter is about that higher resolution, but also it's about depth of field. So again, you know, you get maybe the greatest sequence in the movie, in my my opinion, at the well. I mean, that's all depth of field. <laughs> you know, that's all him playing with that, and uh, and of course, you know, again that shot, that incredible shot that ends of the um, attack of Aquabah. And again, you just see so much in the frame. You know, I, I I love how it's composed that way, which is, of course, again another reason to see it projected if you can. But even even when you watch it. You know, digitally you can get a, a feel for just how much thought went into accommodating the format and, and exploiting the format as much as it could.
0: What do you make of him ultimately? I, I just think that the film pulls back and forth so hard on his image as a, a hero and a messiah figure versus his image as a, maybe a, a narcissist and maybe a psychopath versus his image as just a man who Doubts himself and doesn't really know where he fits in. Maybe doesn't fit in anywhere. Like he's all of these things at once. And I think Aline takes in the complexity of those contradictions uh, to a degree that uh, films about heroes on the scale normally don't. What do you end up thinking about him as a character?
2: I think it's all that's kind of unresolvable. It's part of what makes the film so uh, fascinating. But, but I mean, I, this time around, I primarily saw it as a story of a boy. I mean, he's very young. And to me, that early shot where he's riding on the camel and just like bouncing up and down, giddy that he's going on an adventure with like these, these characters, you know, those characters might be for like from, from a, a storybook he read as a kid. I mean, and then slowly kind of having any illusions about what that means stripped away over the course of the film, uh, you know, what, what it means to go to war, what it means to be in, 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 in Arabia, what it means to, to mix with these people and what violence means. I mean, there's that Really chilling line about how it's, he hates to realize that he likes violence. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a, man, a really magnificent scene where he's kind of pantomiming. Well, he thinks he's by himself but he has the the, the ro- and, robes. Yeah, when the he robes gets the robes, the I was I was yeah. waiting
3: to bring up that Me exact too. scene in the context of this question. So yeah, which, which which is
2: which is fantastic and and was actually a kind of a blank that O'Toole that Lean asked O'Toole to fill in. It's like do some stuff here. <laughs> and he's done so brilliantly and and. And and he holds up, the, you know, that scene where he like looks at himself preening him the knife. And this is not saying I spot it, but it's, it's like it's pointed out in a documentary I watched about the film. Uh, it's mirrored really brilliantly later when he holds up. It you know, kind of has the same pose where he's holding up the knife and it's covered in blood. And and, and like mm-hmm. this, these, these, this is not where he thought it was going. And to me that was that was kind of what I latched on to in terms of his character this time around. It was like this this you know boy's journey in, into the awfulness of manhood in the realities of war.
3: I'd expand it to even like the sequences that uh, surround that image of him kind of dancing around in the robes, which are, of course, him uh, going back uh, through the desert to get the fallen soldier and bringing him back. And like that just feels like very, you know, evocative of. His, both his arrogance that he believes himself capable of doing something that he's told by Sharif is just impossible and stupid. And, and he does it anyway. And, and he succeeds. And, you know, he, he gets the, these robes and he is accepted by the Arabs as, as a result. And then, you know, immediately after he's sort of like, you know, celebrating that. He has to kill a man, <laughs> you know, like like the sequence of events leads to him killing a man, and the, you know we see through the rest of the film how he kind of struggles with his relationship to that moment and and what comes after it. So I think just and like the city
2: man, the man he rescued,
3: exactly. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Th- thank you. Very important point. <laughs> so I think just in terms of seeing Lawrence as a you know a character in flux who is finding himself in the desert as as it were and he is a very you know he's a man who dances on the line between confidence and arrogance like throughout you know and sometimes it really works out well for him but then you know the down the line the you know the consequences of those actions get harder and harder for him to handle to grapple with
1: i see him as kind of a tarnished idealist Mm-hmm. And that kind of being his journey. Maybe that is related to what Keith is saying about him being a, a boy on an adventure, because I think that when the film begins, he is pursuing a course of action that is bold, you know, kind of simple and rooted in idealism and, and ends up being a, a correct course of, actage, uh, of action ultimately. But, you know, I think it's just over time, of course, you know, you, you he you, you are forced to make very difficult and painful and haunting decisions because it is war and and you are entering into this realm of incredible compromise being compromised among compromised people and leaders who are who are ultimately going to determine how things are going to go and could completely pervert what it is that you're you're trying to accomplish on this journey and and uh, and there's an act you know i mean the, the act of him killing this person that he rescued and i and i really take that gesture to rescue this person as as gesture of courage and humility as much as anything else but the act of killing him is still an act of idealism it's still like i have a vision for how this could go, how you know people could could be united, they could work together, and it would be good for this country. It would certainly be good for the cause, you know. And it's just again, you know, I mean, the, once you hit intermission, and the mission changes and, and gets fuzzier, morally, or less righteous, then that idealism gets tarnished. But I feel feel like he starts from a fairly pure place.
0: I think it's fascinating that you see the the desert rescue as an act of humility. I, I thought of it as an act of tremendous arrogance. Well, humility I,
1: in terms of he's trying to ingratiate himself. He's trying to prove himself as legit as somebody who belongs with the Bedouins who, who belong who belongs in this group of people who are not like him. And so, and that I mean, of course, then that's a moment. That's the moment that that Omar Sharif's character. You know, completely changes his mind about Lawrence and doesn't see him as an imposter sees him as somebody who did something kind of incredible. And I think in order to do that, that is, that is again, a gesture of humility and of, and of courage.
0: Courage, yes, but I, I just, I don't see how it's at all humble to say, I refuse to do what the world does. I, I refuse to let heat and lack of water and, and the desert kill me. I refuse to die. I refuse to let this other person die. I don't think it's any less fascinating a gesture. I, I think that that sort of dual act, the act of saving the man, the act of choosing to kill the man is the fundamental heart of this movie and, and the most fascinating thing that happens in it. And I, I think it's hugely telling about Lawrence. But I think the way he approaches it, as he cannot bear to fail in his assertion that they're going to cross the desert and take the city, he can't bear, bear to fail in even the smallest way. He cannot admit that he made a choice that let somebody die. And he can't admit that it's possible for him to die. You know, he, the fact that he keeps returning to like nothing is written, like it is, it is by my will that these things happen. And then when it pays off for him, when it works, we see him come back to that idea over and over. Like he tells Ali at one point, do you think I'm just anybody? You know, he stands in the face of the soldier who shoots him and just stares him down because he's come to believe that he's immortal. Uh, he's He's come to believe that no serious harm can come to him. And him getting shot and just getting a small graze wound on the shoulder seems to just underline that for him. I really think that this man is kind of like he's he's breathing his own farts. He's he's full of his own <laughs> arrogance here. And it's fascinating because of what he accomplishes as a result, but also how miserable it makes him. You know, it's uh, I think this is a really interesting psychological portrait. I wish at times, you know, as much as you don't necessarily want more exposition in a movie or want somebody explaining what you're seeing on screen, there are points where I wish he could articulate some of what he's going through a little more clearly. When he kills Gazim and he says afterwards, I liked it, I'd love to know, like, does he just enjoy the feeling of power, of having life and death control over people, or is he talking about, like, an actual bloodlust, like... What is in that that makes him so
2: afraid of himself? I don't need that explained. I think it's I think it's fine leaving that ambiguous. I
3: think it is ambiguous in the way that O'Toole says it because I don't I don't know if I really believe him, you know, that, that he liked it. Like, he's so anguished when he says it. And obviously, that's a, you know, a hard thing to admit to yourself or, or, or say aloud. But I don't know. Like, it seems like he's almost like trying to convince himself that he is, you know, uh, the type of person that would do this action, because it's the only way that he can reconcile that he did it. I don't know. I agree that I don't think I would actually want him to lay that out. But I think that, you know we don't we only get a few glimpses like that into what he is feeling and how he is processing what is happening to them and that they are presented kind of like very glancing and ambiguously does I think to Tasha's point kind of make it a a little hard to get a read on this character.
0: I think it's okay that we have a hard time getting a read on him because he has a hard time getting a read on himself. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that that funeral scene at the beginning shows that other people had the same problem. But at the same time, sometimes you love tension and narrative. And at the same time, you're kind of programmed to wish it would resolve, you know, you want to not know the ending of the story, because that makes it a better story that you can think about more. But there is always just sort of that itch for, you know, yeah, but what's the answer? (laughs) And I like that this film creates that itch. I like that this film leaves us with mysteries but that's not going to stop me from from kind of (laughs) wishing that some things were more spelled out one of the big ambiguities here is one of the big ambiguities about lawrence's life in general which is the biographers have debated for a long long time now uh, whether he was gay Mm -hmm. he didn't have significant relationships um the guardian has a story about like a secret marriage that he was in for a very brief period of time in 1928 which (laughs) <laughs> the way The Guardian puts it seems like they think that solves the question of whether he was gay, as if gay men have never married women in the history of time.
3: Especially not in that period. <laughs> Especially not in
0: that period. But, you know, there's there was another book that was pretty much devoted to he was gay and here's how it shaped him. It's something people have questioned for a long time. That's also not something I need answered here, but I, I feel like the movie, Whether Lean was overtly asking these questions or not. I think things like his close relationship with the, the two young men kind of raise the question. His little dance and his his pleasure in his finery uh, to me just kind of reads as a, a gently queer kind of moment. And it's, it's one of the reasons I love that scene so much is just it gives you a little look at how kind of what he he has these very boyish pleasures when he allows himself to, and most of the time he takes himself very seriously, but occasionally he doesn't, and you kind of get this this image of a guy that's not just arrogant and and narcissistic at times, but a, like a little playful and a little vain in a, a pretty cute way, I gotta say.
2: I think that ambiguity about his sexuality is is in the film, uh, uh, you know, uncommented upon but present, and I think it's part of what makes it. Again, it makes it such a Cloak and an interesting performance. And uh, we talk, we talked about how there's no women in this film, which I think you know is part part of the point. But I, um, we we see women. We see there's a few more characters. We see women milling about at the funeral, and then I think rather pointedly, the closest view we get of of women are are the dead bodies in in the village. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, men go to war, and this is this is what happens. Uh, But I mean, he is such a a not traditionally masculine presence amidst all these very traditionally masculine characters that it's it's another point of point of contrast i mean really the performance reminds me so much and even the character and the progress reminds me so much of david bowie i mean just just the uh uh the the unclassifiable uh you know uh, the 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 messianic qualities that that he played with a lot early in his career i mean i'm sure bowie saw this film and i think there's some lessons learned from it as well
0: I actually got Priscilla Queen of the Desert vibes mm. during the towards the end of the train sequence where he's dancing around on the the roof of the overturned train, again, just kind of sporting his his finery and and waving his uh robes around. There's just kind of a a little bit of a feeling of that like queer celebration in there.
3: I think if we're going to, you know, talk about sort of the the queer coding in this one, we also have to briefly touch on the scene with the Turkish bay where Lawrence is stripped down and, and questioned. And I, I think that that character played by Jose Ferrer, I think you can definitely read some sort of uh, predatory sexual intent in that performance, uh, if you are if you are looking for it. And Lawrence's reaction to it, you know, is. Uh, loaded, you know, if, if you are bringing that, that context to it, if, you know, if he is closeted or figuring out what he is, you know, I think that all is, is kind of percolating in that scene.
0: It's definitely percolating people at the time i mean uh seven pillars of wisdom was a, a, a very big book and the stripped down version of it the he did later was also a, a very big book and he comes out and says in his autobiographies that they sexually assaulted him he doesn't get into detail um it's unclear exactly what happens but lean was certainly aware of that and audiences would have been too mm-hmm. that he's it's not just a vague implication of him having been raped in some way. It, it, they're, they're actually meant to understand, like the audience of the time were meant to understand that this happened. So, and, you know, we see it's honestly, to some degree, the only thing that explains the extremity of his response mm-hmm. afterward, you know, because being flogged is a horrible thing, but he comes out of that experience like emotionally ruined and has to put himself together after, afterward. And there's just, there's a lot going on there that, that audiences would have known about. But man, rewatching that scene, I just, I mostly just kind of come down to like how mesmerizing Jose Ferrer is in that mm. role, how oily and intimidating and, uh, outright creepy he is. And, how lustful the whole scene is in a very S and M kind of way.
1: <laughs> Jose Ferrer, the Emperor in uh, David Lynch's Dune.
3: <laughs> you know, we're not doing that. I Dune, know, right? Scott. You watched saying, the right movie. <laughs> I'm just saying
1: that. I'm just saying that if you want that, if we were making connections between Lawrence Arabia and Dune, it's uh, I don't think it's it's probably not. It's probably makes a little sense that uh, Jose Ferrer was cast in that role. Anyway. <laughs>
0: The sequence leading up to his capture by the Turks, though, that's another place in the movie that I feel like there's a lot of ambiguity that maybe troubles the film more than helps it. Maybe it's something in O'Toole's performance, because I feel like, you know, as as Ali is telling him, Look we we can't go in there you have white skin you stand out you'll be captured and Lawrence just keeps saying oh i'm invisible oh it'll be fine and then they, they walk in and like 3 seconds later they're spotted by guards and he's like oh i'm fine this is fine you know i'm i'm definitely getting like dogs sitting in a room on fire vibes <laughs> the whole sequence is just so again he's caught up in his own arrogance and i see where you can fit it just into the pattern of him overreaching and being harmed as a result leading up to him speeding and being harmed as a result in the opening scene but the the way that whole sequence plays out just kind of feels like like he had a plan like he knew what was going on and it's in like otill's performance there is is not somebody overreaching and getting burned Uh, It's almost like somebody who's just completely unaware of his surroundings, despite everybody repeatedly telling him what you're doing is dumb. You're going to get hurt. And then he immediately gets hurt. And if he learns anything from it, I'm not sure that we see it. It's a weird weak spot in the film for me.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, again, a lot of stuff that happens in the second half is kind of harder for me to recall because things do just get very, very murky um, on a lot of different levels.
0: Well, that's fair. We should take a moment to talk about what does stand out, particularly in terms of the performances. You know, there are so many like big and, and memorable performances here. I just want to call out Claude Rains as the like British intelligence guy. We don't get much detail about him, but the, the character that he was based on was basically it, more or less like civil intelligence, a subsection of the British army that was basically created to exploit the Arab situation and like figure out what advantage Britain could gain from it. And we learn very little about him as a character, but we don't need to know anything about him. He's so charmingly sleazy. He's so present without saying anything and he exerts his his influence and his power in such small and and quiet ways while still having enough authority to get what he wants. I just love that that performance and that role how minimalist it is and how much is accomplished with it. Who else stands out for you? Who, who do you want to call out?
1: I really love Omar Sharif in this movie. Yes. Uh, and that character is incredible. I mean, here's a character. I think, I think you could say that he's kind of the moral center of the film. He's sort of the conscience of the film. And yet we're introduced. Our introduction to him is him shooting someone in cold blood uh, <laughs> uh, from, from taking water from a well. Which would seem to be something that a character would have to do a lot to come back from, but um, but he is a man of integrity. He he believes he comes to after some after deep skepticism comes to believe, be persuaded by Lawrence and, and Lawrence's cause and then, you know, later disappointed by him. I just I think there's a lot there in that performance, a lot in that relationship that he has with Lawrence and in a lot of chemistry between those two actors in, in particular. So that that's a definite standout performance for me.
2: This was in uh, Sharif's introduction to the wider world. He had been acting in movies. Uh, he's, he's Egyptian. Had been acting in movies made in the region. But uh, uh, but what a breakthrough! I mean, just think think about it, you know he and O'Toole at the same time, um, <laughs> kind of coming out together and uh, you know coming up together in this film. It's uh, fantastic.
3: Yeah. I like the stories of them kind of, like, browing out during the filming oh, of,
2: yeah. of, of this. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, 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 the stories, the, the, the making of this film had to be uh, colorful. And, like, yeah. you know, uh, O'Toole, O'Toole was a famous drinker. Sharif was a famous gambler. I mean, <laughs> it's a potent combination.
0: Yeah, that that NPR interview with Sharif, he he says they basically had to spend a full year in the desert to shoot this movie. They just lived in the desert that you're seeing for a year and yeah but i just kind of lived together shared a tent hung out together and it it sounds like there would both be amazing stories and that would it would be a pretty miserable time there's no location in this movie that i would be eager to live in i think
3: i mean i feel like if we're talking about performances like like, I feel like I should call out maybe, like, Anthony Quinn or, or, or Alec Guinness, but, like, you asked about characters, too, that, that stick out to us, and I really just wanted to bring up Dawood and Farage, the mm. um, the orphans that he takes in, and specifically their mm. deaths, uh, which are, like, two of the most harrowing moments in a film that has has no shortage of harrowing moments, but that, that quicksand scene, man... That was one that I kind of needed to like take a few breaths after, you know. It's, it's, so. it's
2: never-ending really story, like, isn't it?
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, sandworm, like, if you if yeah. you will. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, the characters themselves are admittedly like a little. Th- they are thinly drawn, you know, and they're kind of like interchangeable and the performances are just kind of like they are what they are. They're, they're not particularly like rich performances, but I just think like those characters function in the story and how they uh, affect Lawrence's character and how they change his character, I think are one of the more more interesting threads of, of the movie for me.
1: And I think that I think this, the quicksand death is a character moment for Lawrence as well in the sense that... He, we can see him again making a calculated decision, which is that both of them need to survive this <laughs> at a, you know, that the, they can try, they can do what the best that they possibly can to save this kid from dying, but they can't go all the way. They can't die with him. And, uh, I mean, th- and those are kind of like the choices that you have to make in war. And it's a choice of course that he has to make, that he's made with Gasim when he kills him. You got to be thinking a little bit about the larger picture and if you know a person has to is is you know sacrificed or or loses his life in a tragic way as a result and that then so be it
3: well it also complicates the idea of the white savior which is obviously something that this this movie is is dogged by you know and and lawrence himself is kind of dogged by and you know, he is a a white savior to them in in a way, but then he is very much not, uh, very pointedly so. And I just, I don't know. I think that just in terms of Lawrence finding himself and figuring out who he is and how he fits into, to this environment, obviously Sharif's character is kind of like the, the linchpin of that evolution. But I think that, uh, his uh Dawood and Faraj are you know sort of Im- important counterpoints as as well uh, as sort of innocence that he becomes responsible for you know un- unwillingly uh and then you know arguably and then more fails willingly.
0: and know responsibility to both of them exactly you know and not in a way that necessarily reflects badly on him like both of them, both of them uh, die from accidents that weren't necessarily preventable, but in the end, he's a savior who can't save
3: everyone. Well, and, and they're in that situation because of Lawrence's plan. You know, his and his because arrogance of their trust again. in him, yeah, their, yeah. their belief in him.
0: Yeah, I I find them pretty fascinating just because they you know they start as such stereotypes, the mm-hmm. grasping, begging, have learned enough English to uh, hit people up for freebies orphan is just a character that we see over and over and over in stories about this, like anywhere in this region, like up to and including stories about soldiers in Afghanistan uh, or Iraq today. It's just a really tried and true and irksome and based in reality uh, kind of cliche and seeing these two develop from that cliche into it, you know, basically little warriors, people who take a stand and and believe in something bigger than themselves, even if that bigger thing is a, a British officer, and eventually give their lives for it. It's humanizing in a way that movies of the time were not always humanizing about basically non-whites of of mm-hmm. any kind. So, it's it's interesting to see how that's handled. I know that you said, uh, Guinness and, and Quinn, you don't necessarily... Know whether you want to you you like their performances, but you don't know about their characters. But I, I think that uh, Sheikh Auda is one of the most interesting figures in the movie. I, I, I oh, really oh, yeah. like the performance, but the character himself, like as this kind of like fierce, proud, like warrior survivor type, who also is not immune to being manipulated. But is smart enough to acknowledge that he's being manipulated and to manipulate his manipulation. Like I love the layers of him, particularly just just the layers of. All right, I see what you're doing here, but I I do stand to profit from it, so I'm going to go along with it. And if I refused, then that would be wounding my pride. So. I hate you for knowing how to manipulate me, but I'm going to let you. I like. I. I just. I love that entire conversation and in his tent, you know, with his people outside eating his food and and singing his praises on cue.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't uh, mean to imply that like I don't like that character, that performance at all. I, I. I'm more. There's like the four like really big performances, you know, at the the, the kind of like top line this film of of O'Toole, Sharif, Guinness. And Anthony Quinn, like I think, like those are kind of the 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 ones that you have to talk about (laughs) with this film. So I think I was more like I don't need to talk about them. Everyone (laughs) talks about them. I want to talk about the two orphans (laughs) that everyone forgets about. Mm -hmm. But no, I mean I I absolutely agree with your uh, description there, Tasha. It's a very uh, one of the richest characters, if not the richest character in the film.
0: That's entirely fair. We we could get into all of the British officers and how they differ. We could get into the, I can't tell them apart. <laughs> <laughs> they, they've got different flavors of uh, arrogance and, and pompousness. We could also get into the the deep seated irony of the British functionary who slaps Lawrence upside the head. And calls him a racist name when he thinks he's a, a native, yeah. but then later leaps to shake his hand and, and brags about it at the funeral. Like, there are a lot of, of bits and pieces of this that could make for podcasts all on their own. But Honestly, we need to move along. uh We have hours of Dune left to consider. <laughs>
3: so many miles of desert to cross before we end this podcast.
0: <laughs> we, we've we've got the anvil of sun before us. Uh, the only thing I was curious about—I know this delves into Scott's dreaded and hated extra textuals—but did you look into any of the historical founding for this movie, and uh you know who some of these figures actually were?
2: Not much. I'd like to. I'm afraid. <laughs> I, 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 mean, <laughs> I mean,
3: I mean, I did, I did, like a like a Wikipedia skim after afterwards, you know, but 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 nothing too deep. But what what I was actually more more than diving into like the life of the real T.E. Lawrence, I was more kind of the blanks I wanted to fill in were more just about like this war, which is something which you know, like World War One in general is like not on film that much, and I don't think. And the Arab revolt in particular is... In any other film, at least not a, a U.S. production, you know, so like the sort of the historical context of this film was I didn't have it, you know, and I realized uh, at, at intermission, I was like, I should probably have a slightly firmer grasp on like the, the geopolitical context here. So that, that was a little more what I was concerned with filling in than the, the real T.E. Lawrence, because I, I think like it doesn't, I don't know, it wasn't really important to me to do that sort of comparison in the context of a film that has so much going on in the film itself, at least not this time around, you know, maybe my third or fourth time seeing Lawrence (laughs) of Arabia. I'll I'll, want to scratch that itch, as as, as you put it before, Tasha, but, uh, but no, not this time. Yeah, I just I
0: find it fascinating. There were a lot of lawsuits, basically. I did, yeah, I I did
3: catch that. (laughs) Yeah, the
0: families of uh, people depicted in this movie, particularly uh, the the General Allenby character, and it's just I think it's interesting to me. Like I complain a lot in these podcasts about the difference between real history and film history, the difference between how biographies are are formed and shaped in cinema versus the messiness of actual lives. But in this case, it, I think it's just fascinating because there were so many different impressions of the historical Lawrence, and there's so much dispute about so many different aspects of his life. And the historians are still arguing. There's there's still new books coming out that are like, no, uh, when when so and so said that Lawrence did X or was X or had X role, they they were wrong, and here's the proof. It fascinates me that we have a movie this big and memorable and charged. About this man that people are still to this day arguing about and trying to figure out. So, uh, yeah, extra textuals. But, uh, you know, if this if this movie interests you, maybe wait till you've seen it the fourth time as uh is going to do. But yeah, I, I think it's probably good that this is a good enough movie to. Warrant maybe coming back to you a third yeah. or fourth time.
2: One mm-hmm. other bit of extra textual before we move on. Uh, uh, O'Toole talks about as, how as the son of an odds maker, he knew he was not going to win Best Actor despite being nominated. I think I was, I was wondering what the competition was. This was a competition for the Best Actor. It was O'Toole, Marcello Mastriani, Jack Levin, Burt Lancaster, and Gregory Peck, who ultimately won for To Kill a Mockingbird. So a good year for, for, for major <laughs> <laughs> actors. <laughs> yeah.
0: And it's not like Peter O'Toole didn't go on to a uh, long and celebrated career. But speaking of going on, we have, again, miles of desert to cross before we sleep. So we're going to wrap this up for the moment, and we'll be back shortly with feedback. It's time for feedback, where we answer any questions and respond to any comments about our episodes or anything else in the world of film. For once, we have a backlog of call-in feedback, which we certainly appreciate because we are so used to hearing our own voices, it's fun to finally hear more of yours. Reaching back to our pairing on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Reminiscence, let's hear Bill in New York on the use of water in the movie.
4: Greetings, Next Picture Show. This is Bill Shun calling from New York City uh, about your recent pairing of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Reminiscence. As one of many science fiction writers who've written about drowning cities of the future, I too found Reminiscence a big disappointment. The movie has some great ideas and looks cool, but besides the iffy story, it's art directed to a fault and just has kind of an airless, hermetic, sound stagey feel to it. But maybe the biggest disappointment about it was this movie's failure to do much of anything with the symbolic power of all that water. In Chinatown, one of its obvious touchstones, water is a weapon the rich can wield because there's not enough of it. In Reminiscence, water is a weapon the rich can wield because there's just so much of it. But for all that, the water in this movie just lies there inert the whole time. It might kill you if a piano drags you under the surface, but otherwise all that menace and potential subtext remains untapped. I was reminded the whole time I was watching of the way the water imagery in a movie like The Master feels so loaded with meaning, and I really missed that sense here. Maybe you have some other favorite movies where water imagery is equally potent. Come to think of it, maybe a more apt pairing for reminiscence might have been Waterworld. Thanks, guys, and keep up the good work.
0: That's a hell of a little tag there on the end. And I think he, he just stepped in there to make sure we didn't all compete to see who could talk about how much we loved the the water in Waterworld. <laughs> um, I don't know about y'all, but like the first thing that, that leapt to my mind with this, uh, well, after Jaws, because uh, Jaws is an, as inevitable as Thanos. But... Uh, <laughs> John Huston's <laughs> 1956 Moby Dick, I think, was the movie that made books about sailing, stories about sailing, uh, come into focus for me. Like I, d- I didn't see that movie until long after I had, uh, for instance, read Jack London's The Sea Wolf. Like I, I came to books about the ocean and and sailors long before I watched movies like that. But that was the movie that, that fully brought home to me, like, just how perilous the water must have seen back then. Just how perilous the water must have seen for people who were living for months, uh, on a, on a boat, given how much it could change and how rapidly, how easily it could, you know, dwarf or engulf a ship, how easily it could hide any number of things so much bigger and, uh, more voracious than you. I think that that, Movie just brings across the the deadliness of the ocean in a profoundly powerful way, and for, for a movie made in 1956, the special effects in that movie are. Just like mind blowing, so yeah, that's that's the movie that stands out for me in terms of water use.
3: It's <laughs> funny, Tasha, because I actually went kind of to a similar place in terms of like a movie that you know made the scary power of the of the ocean like you know viscerally real for me. Um, but it's a very different and maybe not particularly good movie, but it's one that I saw at an age where it, uh, it kind of imprinted on me, and that is the nineteen ninety six Ridley Scott film, White Squall. Does anyone mm. else recall that that film? No, I just I did
1: a, uh, a really Scott list, so I saw oh, that, that. That's saw, right. I saw, Yeah, I definitely am familiar with White Squall. Yeah,
3: I have. I haven't revisited it since I was a teenager when it, when it came out, but I definitely like still have kind of images in my mind of that final, uh, you, you know, of the of the ship going down and how. Terrify. I, I remember it being very terrifyingly rendered. Um, I, I I haven't seen the the Moby Dick that you are uh, the, the Houston Moby Dick, Tasha. So I but I am you know I, I feel like it is maybe a better film overall than White Squall. But I certainly got uh, that a sort of similar experience from it. A lot, um, lot of handsome young men at, in yeah, well, at you White know, Squall. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine why thirteen year old me imprinted upon <laughs> yeah. this film with a bunch with like shirtless Chris O'Donnell in it. Um, but. <laughs> uh, anyway, but uh, after uh, going to that place, I um, started thinking about this question more in terms of animation because water is obviously just a very, uh, it is, if you're an animation fan, just the uh, sort of trajectory of uh, how water is rendered is just fascinating. You know, um, I, I wrote about uh, Pinocchio for, for the dissolve back when it was a movie of the week and talked a lot about the water there. But um I, I kinda wanted to bring up a more recent uh example, but still hand drawn animation, which is Song of the Sea by our beloved uh cartoon mm-hmm. Saloon, uh, which, you know, is a it's a story about a, a Selkie. Um, you know, so obviously the you know, the sea well, it's right there in the title, the sea plays a part. But um it has a very stylized rendering of of water that I feel especially as, as animation has is uh, CG has has become the dominant mode of, of, of animation you know uh, realism has kind of become the, the main goal you know something like Moana which I, I also you know love the water in that film but compa- Song of the Sea by comparison it's just like the water is more of a character when it's rendered in a stylized way it's not like a force of nature I mean it is a force of nature but it, it, it has a kind of a personality that it doesn't necessarily when it's this like big looming entity so um yeah song of the sea i i I love i love that film i'm always gonna stump for it so that's kind of where my mind went with this question for sure i mean song of the
0: sea is just a huge huge favorite of mine but yeah you're right i hadn't thought about pinocchio and the the water in pinocchio is just such a standout element like both from the the sea around monstro when he's you know, mm-hmm. breaching out of the water to just the puddle, that heartbreaking sequence of my least favorite thing in the world, the Disney death, <laughs> uh, where, where Pinocchio is face down in in the puddle. Oh, and yeah. you're just watching the tide pools slowly drain out and the ripples in the water. That shot is just fantastic. It's just
1: stunning. Okay, Got to also give a shout out to maybe my favorite sequence in all of animation, which is uh, which is in Spirited Away. Very nice use of water oh. in that oh, sequence, yeah. and Ponyo as well. I mean, obviously, this is this is an uh, animator who cared about a, uh, the rendering of water.
0: When you say that scene in Spirited sequence, Away, I, I assume you know you're, you're talking, talking about. about like yes, the, but you're, you're talking about train. the rescue
1: of the river spirit. The train. Oh no! I had to talk about the train. Uh, See, I'm
0: I'm glad I clarified because okay. yeah, the water in the train scene is is gorgeous, mm-hmm. um, and it's so contemplative and and still. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when I think of water in that movie, I this is something that I wrote about for the dissolve, and that may be my favorite piece of film criticism I've ever written. Is just about the fluid and spirited away. <laughs> but I I think of uh, the the whole team at the bathhouse. Hauling sludge out of the, the river spirit and trying to get it clean underwater. And then it emerging as this, this sort of avatar of water out from under everything that's polluted it. Like that, that sequence is also a tremendous use of water.
2: I always seize up when anyone asks me a question like this. And i like, I, I'm pretty sure I haven't seen any movies with water in them because I <laughs> never think of anything. But actually, I, I watched, here, here's what I watched one today, this very day we're recording this. It has, has, uh, uh, mural use of water and a, a, a cut. That is almost like blowing the match match out in Lawrence Arabia, like in its ability to to cut through time and and space. It's uh, Blonde Venus, uh, the Marlena Dietrich, uh, Joseph von Sternberg film, which opens with um, uh, Herbert Marshall playing one of several Americans, uh, although. <laughs> it's a film in which both Cary Grant and Herbert Marshall play Americans, and rather not not so convincingly American. Uh, but but stumbling across across a bunch of uh, young German actresses uh, bathing nude in a in a pond, which is all uh, artfully obscured by 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 foliage and and so on. But it's this very flirtatious, uh, you know, sexually charged moment where where they meet, uh, where Herbert Marshall meets Merlena Dietrich and 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 flirts with her, and then there is sort of like a a cut from. I think it's her limbs in the water to another pair of limbs. And you realize it's a boy in a bathtub and it's third kid. <laughs> you know, that over many years later and in, in America, just kind of, kind of cut across uh, uh, time and space. Uh, you know, you can kind of fill in the blanks yourself as to what happened in between.
0: I will say uh, all of these examples kind of have to do with a profusion of water or the monumental presence of water. I want to give a little shout out to uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Mm, and of course, it's yeah. the way it addresses the lack of water and the control of water. And just the contrast between that, that one scene where a Morden Joe opens up the floodgates and lets people grab all the water they can for a short period of time versus the Desert exhaustion of most of the rest of the film as the characters go, you know, traipsing across the desert in search of the green place, the mythical green place. There are uh, a lot of movies that use water in that way, memorably, just in terms of how little of it you have uh, being a a huge thing. And Lawrence of Arabia is one of those, you know, that, that moment where they all come out of the anvil of the desert to the wells and the men and the camels all kind of have their faces down to this like muddy, filthy, unpleasant looking water, and they're sucking it down like it's the greatest thing ever. And, and you know exactly why, because you know where they've come from. So, uh, you know, films, films built around the lack of availability of water, I think, uh, just as memorable as, as films that suffuse you with
3: water. Real quick, before we move on, I have to correct myself. Earlier, when I was talking about a uh, white squall, I referenced a shirtless Chris O'Donnell. I, of course, meant a shirtless Scott Wolf. So, just <laughs> in case any uh, O'Donnell heads the out there are wondering, <laughs> regret the
1: error. Yes. Um, I, I how guess how that, dare you? If I, if I guess about my, uh, um, to wrap this up, I, I, I would say the first thing I thought about was one of my favorite filmmakers, current filmmakers, Simon Liang uh, from Taiwan. Uh, Water is a, is a major motif in every single one of his, his movies, but it's kind of unusual. It's hard. it, It has a symbolic value, but it's, it's kind of unplaceable. And when he was asked about it, he said that it's his belief that human beings are just like plants they can't live without water; they'll dry up. And uh, human beings without love or other n- nourishment, other also dry up. And yet, the more water that you see in my mo- movies, the more the characters need to fill a gap in their lives uh, to get hydrated again, which is very strange, uh, but true. And 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 if you think about his films, uh, what time is it there? Uh, the the river, uh, the hole, stray dog, his new one um, uh, called Days. You know, the water is a, is a very important. Presence, constant presence in those um, in those movies, and uh, and kind of a somewhat obscure one, but um, but uh, I think that's just one where you can kind of like look at the symbolic value of that, and also kind of look at the way in which it's it's used. Um, you know, it, it, it sometimes you know, and often I think to depict uh, poverty. I mean, you have a lot of homes that are flooded, the apartments that are flooded. People living in in non living spaces that are flooded. There's an incredible sequence in Stray Dog where his uh, lead actor Lee Kang Shang, is just you know carrying like a board sign uh, you know the, to make a little bit of money, but he's in a, he's in an, an incredible like torrential rainstorm. It's a shot that's held in typical sci form for like <laughs> fifteen minutes or something. So uh, anyway, that's that's what I thought of when I thought about this assignment because because it is a it is a very important part of all of his movies uh, also uh, you know as keith can attest uh, the film uh the wayward cloud you know n- n- people have their way with a watermelon in that picture <laughs> <laughs> you know so God. so that that is uh, you unforgettable i would say that part of that movie
0: God. Now, see, you just, you have me thinking about uh, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite and the the torrential rain that fills up the apartment and uh, just, like, the the blatant oh, right. metaphor for, you know, what it means to literally be underwater yep. as yep. a lower-class family and be underwater. And I, I feel like if we let ourselves uh, start riffing on this and, and yeah. associating from one movie to the next, we could do this for another
2: two hours. <laughs> nope, yeah. I've only seen one water- movie with water in it, and I talked about it
0: already, so... <laughs>
1: what is that what is that stuff what is that that, that <laughs> wet stuff
0: we have basically invited ourselves into water world and made it our world instead we're gonna move on so i uh, you know flood like we have been inundated with uh other calls but we really need to move on because there's still dune in the woodwork uh so we always appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at Denis Villeneuve's Dune Part 1, which also heads into the desert to find terrific fighters whose newfound uniting leader has to hide his hidden conflicts, but in this case also has to deal with constant flashes of the future and the possibility that his entire family is going to be wiped out by spaceships, which is a problem T.E. Lawrence never had to deal with, as far as we know. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we do not recommend putting out matches with your fingertips and bragging that the trick is not minding that it hurts. It hurts for a reason. Stop doing that.
1: It's my day.